this morning, we begin a new preaching series here at College Street Baptist Church. And uh, by series, I mean book of the Bible. Um, if you're a visitor here, you might be surprised that, uh, to find that I actually don't make up something new to say every week. Um, but I just go back to my study and study the next passage, the next chapter, the next verse. And we preach every week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible. So, if you have been here since we got here in August of 2012 at College Street Baptist Church, we have made it through, believe it or not, ten books of the Bible. Four in the Old Testament, uh, six in the New Testament. And when we finish this next series... We will have finished 11, which means we'll be one-sixth of the way through the Bible. And if you do the math on it, that means uh, if Jesus doesn't come back, and Lord willing, it'll only take 29 more years to finish the Bible from this point. And I'll only be 60 then. So, you know, we'll just have to start back over, I guess. So, without further ado, turn with me to the book, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn in the blue one from the pew in front of you, page 287. And I would encourage you to do that and to keep it open in your lap. Because everything I have to preach, everything I have to say, any encouragement or exhortation I have to you is going to come from these pages of God's Word. If you were here with us uh, just a couple of years ago... We actually went through the book of Judges and Ruth, which are the two books that fall right before 1 Samuel in, uh, in our English translations. And the thing that we came to realize about the people between the time when Joshua conquered the land and the beginning of 1 Samuel is that for about 400 years, the people couldn't seem to get it right. They kept falling into cycles of sin And we kept hearing this repeated refrain that actually ends. It's the very final verse of the book of Judges. This is the conclusion. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So for 400 years, the beginning of the book of Judges to the end of the book of Judges, they were on this quest of which there is only one solution. They need a king. They didn't have one when they started. And then when they finished the book of Judges and we begin the book of 1 Samuel, we're still searching for a king. So 1 Samuel is the story. We actually don't end up with the right king at the end of the book. We'd have to go to 2 Samuel for that. But we know who he's going to be. It's the story of how there came to be a king in Israel. It's the story of the prophet Samuel and Saul, who became the first king of Israel. It's the story of how Saul's disobedience cost him the throne. It's the story of how a little shepherd boy named David was anointed the true messianic king of Israel. It's the story of how that little shepherd boy, David, conquered the Philistines and their giant Goliath. It's the story of the deer precious, beautiful friendship between David and Jonathan. It's the story of how Saul sought to murder and kill David 
It's a story that all starts with a barren woman named Hannah. So let's stand together as we read this story together from the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiah Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year, year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sat, sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Amen. You may be seated. First Samuel, and really much of uh, the book of First Samuel, this first chapter in particular, is what we call a narrative. A narrative is just a fancy English word for story. But I like to say narrative because sometimes when people hear the word story, they think of something that's fiction. And what we're talking about here is a story that is 100% true. In so many ways. It's not made up. It's a historical narrative. But the thing is about a story or about a narrative is that stories have a certain shape to them. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a perfect example of a well-crafted story. It begins with a setting where you meet the characters and you learn their names and maybe one or two uh, traits that are particular to that person or those people. You also learn about the, the place that it's, it's happening. What are the circumstances? And then there's some kind of conflict that comes in and it... it it complicates the plot. And that's where our interest is piqued. How is this conflict going to be resolved? And as the story progresses, usually the tension begins to build, kind of like riding up a roller coaster, until you reach the moment of highest tension in the story, where you're at the top of the hill, right before you're about to head back down. And that's what we call the climax. And then you usually have some kind of falling action, which then ends in a resolution. And depending on whether at that climax it turns for good or for bad, your resolution will either have you end up in a worse place than you were at the beginning or a better place. And that's why we have comedies and we have tragedies. That's what determines that turn on the climax. Is it something terrible that ends up happening or something good? The first three verses of chapter 1 in 1 Samuel present us with something very familiar. Unrolls kind of the setting for us, all these characters. In fact, uh, the writer here introduces us to all of the important characters from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, all the way till chapter 8. Not another important character will appear until then. We're told that this certain man, a man named Elkanah, who's from the tribe of Ephraim, had two wives named Hannah and Penina. We're told nothing about these women, these women. Other than that, number one, they're married to Elkanah, and then number two, they're polar opposites of one another. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. That's how the story defines these women, and you have to wonder whether that's how these women define themselves, being married to the same man. And in verse 3, we're introduced to Eli, who's a priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, whose names mean brawler and snake mouth. And we will learn more about them 
in a couple of weeks, but uh, even from their names, we can determine they're probably not going to be the heroes of the story. And then we learn about an important yearly rhythm that sort of fills this setting. This man, Elkanah, and his family, verse 3, it says that they were in the habit of going up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. This seems like a great beginning. We've got a family, and here they are. They are in the practice of obeying the law of God and worshiping together as a family, year by year going up and celebrating the festival of the Lord. But ironically, it's in this act of family worship that the conflict enters the picture. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us, On the day, on the very day, when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So what would happen is the people would come to the tabernacle at this time. There wasn't a temple yet in Jerusalem, so they would go to Shiloh. They would offer sacrifice. And a portion of that sacrifice would be burned, offered up to the Lord. The smoke would rise up to the Lord. A portion of that sacrifice would be given to the priest. And then the rest of that sacrifice would be eaten by the family as an act of thanksgiving and worship to the Lord. So you can imagine family, they're all sitting down together for this great uh, time of family worship, and Elkanah's going around, and he's dishing out the meat. One portion for you, one portion for you, one portion for you, for Penina and all of her sons and daughters. And then when he comes around the table to Hannah, everyone's watching. She's the last one. He takes the entire bowl and just scrapes it clean, and she has this giant mountain of food in front of everyone else. Year after year, Elkanah was turning their family worship into a visual reminder of who he loved the most. Now, how well do you think that sat with the rest of the family? You can imagine how that made Panina feel. And so, she finds the only burr in Hannah's saddle that she can poke and prod and wheedle. Hannah has no children. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So this yearly event, which was meant to be a time of family worship, of healing, of forgiveness, the house of the Lord that was supposed to be a place of grace and thanksgiving becomes nothing but a yearly vexation, irritation, oppression upon this woman, Hannah. Now, doesn't Elkanah sound just like a man because he is totally oblivious to why things are happening this way? Look at verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why? Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He sees his wife crying. 
He sees her weeping. She won't eat anything at the table. And he hits her with these rapid fire, why, 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 questions of which he already knows the answer. Me. I'm the answer. He's already reasoned through the problem and has found the solution. He says, it's me. I'm the answer to your problems, Hannah. Won't you just receive me and treasure me? What we realize as we're reading the story from the outside looking in is that he's not the answer to the problem. He's the cause of the problem. He's the source. Uh, Can't we imagine how this whole family came into being in the first place? Elkanah and Hannah, they get married and they're so in love and things are going well. But year after year, there's just one hang up. Hannah can't seem to get pregnant. And for a while, it's okay. But after a while... You know, like men do, Elkanah came up with a solution to the problem. Well, I'll just marry another woman who can give me kids. Don't worry about it, Hannah. I'll just, we'll just throw another lady into the mix. Imagine how that made Hannah feel. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart not sad? It's easy for you to tell me to cheer up whenever you get to go have a big happy family with some other woman and I just have to stand on the sideline and watch. But on the other hand, think about Panina for a second here. How do you think she felt to be plan B? Year after year, Elkanah lays it on nice and thick to remind her she is plan B as he dishes and dishes and dishes onto Hannah's plate. Reminding the whole family, not just Panina, but all of her sons and daughters, which wife he loves more than the other. People love to say that the Bible condones polygamy. There's no greater argument against polygamy than to simply throw open the doors and show what's going on inside the house. And all of its misery and distress. This is Hannah's life. A prison of oppression and irritation. Daily taunts. Daily vexation. Daily being provoked by the one woman who was brought into the house to do the one thing that she couldn't do. Have children. No one understands. No one sees her. There's no escape. Even her own husband seems to completely be unable to sympathize with anything she's going through. But something in the the insensitive remark that her husband gives to her provokes Hannah to action. Matthew Henry explains, Elkanah had said, Am I not better to you than ten sons? Which perhaps occasioned her to think within herself, whether this man, my husband, whether he be so or not, God is. And therefore to him will I apply, and before him will I pour out my complaint, and try what relief that will give me. In the next scene in verse 10, we see Hannah as dinner finishes, she flees from the table in tears, and she runs into the courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 10 tells us, She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed 
of thou, and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. In verse 11, the dam breaks. And everything that Hannah has been welling up inside of her just gushes out. And she begins to pour her heart out to the Lord. I think the phrase that the ladies use for this is ugly cry. (laughs) Hannah is ugly crying in the courts of the Lord. And something strange happens there as she's on her face praying For the first time, perhaps since Hannah could ever remember, someone listens. All of her life was full of this hustle and bustle and this husband who seemed not interested in listening to what she had to say. But as she begins to pour out her heart, someone listens. No one comes in with interrupting questions saying, why are you so sad? Why won't you eat? What's wrong with you? No one tries to come in and heal her wound with simple, easy solutions. Someone listened. The Lord listened. The story tells us that Hannah was praying so fervently from her heart that Elkanah, who was standing by and listening along with the Lord, mistook her for a drunk. Who here has had that kind of a prayer experience with the Lord? That you were crying and pleading and your lips were moving and you were pouring out your heart so fervently to the Lord that someone came along and mistook you for being drunk. Emptying your heart, pouring it out to every last emotional drop. All of your feelings, all your desires, of your deepest concerns of your heart, just laying them bare before the Lord. I feel like so often in my life, and I bet in yours, our prayers are so perfunctory, lifeless, emotionless activities. Hannah could not afford one more emotionless conversation. She falls on her face and she cries out to the Lord, Is there any grace left for me? Dear Lord, give me a son. How many of us have tried to heal the bitterness and the deep distress of our soul with so many things? With food, with sex, with money, with social media, with shopping, with Netflix binges. We do all these things to try to cover up and to hide the darkness, the emptiness in our hearts, the distress. But here Hannah finds the one thing that can heal the deepest ache of your soul. And it's prayer. Verse 12 tells us that Hannah continued to persevere in prayer and Again, just like a man, Eli comes barging in. 
And we'll come to see that Eli has a vision problem. <laughs> he's not perceptive. And, uh, well, you know, he's a man, so that's kind of par for the course, right? And Eli barges in and he starts to sermonize this poor woman. Look at verse 14. And Eli says to her, oh, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Oh, 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 in that case then, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So Eli the priest, the one who's supposed to be making prayers on behalf of the people, has nothing further to add. To add. In fact, he doesn't even know what request she makes. He simply basically comes in and says, well, amen to whatever you said. May the Lord give you, let it be. May, may it happen to you as you prayed. And Hannah's response is quite telling because what did she ask for? She asked for a son, a child, a male offspring in the King James Version. I love this rendering. A man-child. But what does she really hope to find? Look again at verse 18. She says, let your servant find favor. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. That's what she's really hungry for. Is there any favor left for me? Dear Lord, do you have any grace left for me? Verse 19 is the climax of this story. What's going to happen? Will the Lord answer her prayer? The family finishes worshiping together. They head back home. The narrator tells us that Elkanah knew his wife Hannah. And the climax comes with these five words at the end of verse 19. And the Lord remembered her. We know what's going to happen from there on out. That's where the tension breaks. And the Lord remembered her. All the deepest questions of her soul. Does the Lord really love me? Does the Lord hear me? Will he answer me? Verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked from him from the Lord. She names her son Shamuel. God has heard. God has heard. She treasured this boy. Of course she did. But even in her request, she showed the Lord she was 
fully willing to give him away. What she wanted to know was that the Lord is a God who hears not just the prayers of her husband, not just the prayers of priests like Eli, not just the prayers of worldly successful people who have it all together like the rival wife Penina. Does the Lord hear me in my brokenness, in my destitution, in my poverty of spirit? For Samuel 1 says, And the Lord remembered her. And he gave her a son, just as she had asked. The next year, when Elkanah and his family are headed up back to the house of the Lord, as they did every year, Hannah stays behind. And she says, let's wait until my son is weaned, and then I'll return back to the house of the Lord. Because I'm going to give him to the Lord, and I'm coming back, but he won't return. He's staying with the Lord forever just as I promised. And the story kind of reaches its resolution when Hannah returns to the presence of the Lord. This is her first time back since that day that she had fallen on her face before the Lord asking for this child. And here now, a couple of years later, she returns with that child. Verse 25. And she brings an offering and then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and she spots this man and says to him, Oh my Lord, as, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this. This is the child I prayed for. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. As we reflect on this opening narrative, that just beautiful story that opens this book of 1 Samuel to us, there are too many applications for us to chase together. And I would encourage you later this afternoon, sometime this week, to sit down and read this story over again. And let its truths wash over your spirit and heal your soul. There are just three brief applications I want us to ponder as we finish. The first is really just an invitation to follow the example of Hannah. Number one, plead for grace. Plead for grace from the Lord. As we were reading, did you notice what it was that brought about the change in Hannah's life? And she began to eat and and her expression and everything about her began to change. It wasn't when she received the child. It was immediately after the pronouncement of Eli. Notice what Hannah claims and believes to be her own. Verse 18. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. The King James renders this beautifully. Let thine handmaiden find grace in thy sight. That's when she breaks her fast. And eats. That's when she washes her face. That's when her whole demeanor changes. Does she have a son yet? Mm-mm. But by faith, she has hope that she will have the grace of God. First Samuel is meant to encourage us to pray. And you might think the Old Testament, oh, that's just full of boring old historical stuff. But from its outset, 
The book of 1 Samuel presents itself to any and everyone who picks it up as a book that is meant to drive us to our knees in prayer. Saying, won't you also plead for the grace of the Lord? Trying to drive all of God's people to fall and desperately plead with Him before His throne. American Christians are not ones to typically do this because we particularly like to think of ourselves more of the, as of the heroes of the story. You know, we love to make Christian movies where the Christians win and beat the atheists and all these things. I think in 1 Samuel we have to admit the truth about ourselves, church. We are just like Hannah. We're not the heroes. We are a woman weeping and oppressed by the world with nowhere to turn but to the Lord, desperately falling on our face, pleading, ugly crying before Him and asking Him, begging Him for an act of grace. The difference between us and the world is not that we stand tall and we stand proud and we are the heroes and we wear the capes. No, among a humanity that is laid low in the dust before the Lord, the only thing that sets us apart is we have our hands turned up. Desperately pleading with the Lord to bestow His grace upon us. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the warrior God, stoops so low as to place his grace into the tender hands of Hannah as she pleaded with him. Why not you? Why not us as well? The church should not be a place where people come in and have to dry their eyes and fix their makeup and dress up all pretty and pretend that nothing is wrong. What we see in this story, Hannah falling on her face, pleading, crying in the presence of the Lord, should be normal. Because this is who we are as the people of God. People falling on their face, pleading for the grace of God in the lives of their lost children and grandchildren, and pleading for their co-workers, and pleading for forgiveness for their sins and their disobedience, pleading for the favor of the Lord in their life, which is filled with brokenness and despair. Pleading that they would know from the depths of their soul Not just in theory that God is love, but to know for certain that God loves me. Brothers and sisters, pour out every last drop of your heart to the Lord. Pray. F.B. Meyer exhorts us, Hannah continued praying before the Lord. People may misunderstand and reproach you. The Eli's that judge superficially may leap to hasty conclusions, but you know what? Pray on. Pray on, though the prayer seem impossible of answer. Pray on, though heart and flesh may fail. Pray on, for God will yet raise the poor from the dust and the beggar from the dunghill. And when you have committed your cause to the Lord, go in peace and be sad no more. Well, why can we depart in peace? Our second application this morning. Because 
the Lord remembers. We can depart in peace with Hannah because we know and believe that the Lord remembers. That was the climax of the story. Remember verse 18? And the Lord remembered her. This phrase is so pregnant in so many more ways than one. The writer of 1 Samuel is trying to show more than that God is just, you know, a trusty elephant that never forgets. God has a good memory. He is showing us what kind of a God we are dealing with in this book. A God who remembers every single one of His promises. And God, when God remembers His promises, it's not like, oh yeah, I did promise that. It's when He remembers, He acts. When He remembers, He accomplishes. That is why we cling so closely to this word, because page after page, it is filled with the promises of God, and the Lord remembers every one of them. The Lord remembers. We see in the story of Hannah that when the Lord remembers, He accomplishes, He fulfills, He acts. He remembers the promise he made to Eve that one day he would send an offspring to crush the head of the serpent. He remembers the promise that he made to Sarah that sure enough, even though she was barren in her old age, she would have a male offspring who would go on to become a blessing to all the nations. And as Hannah kneels begging and pleading for a male offspring, we see that the Lord remembers all of those promises and he is determined to act. And he did act. That's our final point as we close. Number three. He has given a son. He has given a son. You see, the plea of Hannah is actually the prayer that resounds over and over again through the people of God throughout this entire book. It's the heartbeat of this narrative. It's the heartbeat of every story From here on out, it's the heartbeat behind all of Scripture. It's this book's theme. Give to your servant a son. Give to your servant a son. You see, the grace of God comes to the people of God in the form of His Son. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the daughters of Eve have pleaded for a son, a male offspring, who would crush the head of the serpent. And from generation to generation, whether they were aware of it or not, the sins of the sons of Adam pleaded for a Savior to be sent to do something about the death and destruction that they were doing to fill the earth. Even when we were alienated and hostile towards God, our sins have cried out on our behalf For a Savior, even when no words were passing between our lips. And the Lord has given a son. The book of 1 Samuel is the beginning of that story of how God remembered and kept that promise. Say it with me if you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
He has given His Son. You see, He remembered. And He hasn't just given a Son. He has given His Son for us. The name Hannah means highly favored one. If we were to translate it into English, it would be the girl's name, Grace. You see, she was favored from the beginning. But it wasn't until she turned to the Lord. It wasn't until she pleaded with the Lord for His grace. It wasn't until she trusted that He was a Lord who remembered. It wasn't until she was given a son that she knew for sure that she had the grace of God upon her. Will you receive the Son of God sent for you? Will you taste and see that the Lord remembers? Will you fall on your knees and plead with Him for grace? Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was crushed. He was downtrodden. He was oppressed, vexed, taunted by the world. When He claimed, came claiming to be our Savior, we tortured Him. We put a crown of thorns on His head. We crucified Him and yet... God raised him from the dead so that everyone who repents and falls before the feet of Jesus pleading for forgiveness will find the grace of God where they least expected it in the Son whom they crucified and killed but whom God raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we journey through the book of 1 Samuel together, we would become a people of prayer. We would find ourselves pouring our hearts out to you, pleading for more and more grace from your hand. We believe and trust and have faith that you are the Lord who remembers, who hears us. And we know it's true because we have received your son Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.